Faith family. If you've got a Bible, go to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, that's where we'll be uh, this morning while you're turning there. Uh, Pastor Terry had mentioned earlier about the uh, REACH uh, initiative that we've been doing for some time here uh, at Berean. And, and one of the things that we're doing is trying to find where the uh, third campus will be uh, located. And that's kind of a difficult process at times to figure out the spots. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited this morning to be able to share with you where we have found the spot for our third location. We actually have a picture of that that I'd like for you to look at. And um, yeah, I have volunteered to be the campus pastor at that new campus. Who's with me? Anybody with me? Okay. All right. I think like 80% of our church would go. Um, no, I'm kidding. I'm glad you're here this morning. Thanks for coming out uh, on a, a difficult morning, but glad that you're here. Excited to be able to share God's wor- a word with you. Before we do, just a couple of things. Uh, also, uh, one thing that was mentioned was the uh, Guatemala team, as you saw Jake's uh, testimony. Um, I put a challenge before this faith family uh, quite some time ago. I believe that we're generous throughout the year, but I ask you to kind of end the year with an expression of generosity, uh, that we're going to be a part of building six homes for families in need. And uh, I put forth a goal of $50,000. I shared this with at our last faith family, but I know some of you weren't there. Uh, we have now actually raised $53,000. So we've exceeded that goal, which is fantastic. So Thank you for your generosity there. By the way, that extra allows us to buy beds for every home, uh, water filters for every home so that they can have clean water. And so you are making an impact through your generosity in the lives of families this week and next week. Half of our team is already down there. The other half will be leaving uh, tomorrow, uh, building two homes this week and then four homes uh, this coming week. And so uh, just thank you. Thank you. We, we will show you some uh, visuals and kind of a documentary in our Christmas services of what God has done through your generosity. But I want to personally thank you as uh, your pastor. Uh, Also, as we come to the book of Hebrews, one more thing I want to share with you. Um, I I tend to sometimes share testimonies of people as we go through a series because we're about gospel transformation here. And so I just want to share an email that I received uh, recently about uh, how their life has been impacted through what we've been learning in the book of Hebrews. This person writes, thank you for the series in Hebrews. It's greatly impacted my walk with Christ. The Lord has really used it to set my heart free in Christ Jesus. I once was living as an old covenant Christian. You remember we talked about that. In constant fear of God's judgment and condemnation. Um, But now I know that Christ is the perfect sacrifice that I could never make in a million years. My perfect high priest who is always living and interceding for me. I am so encouraged. I can't tell you how much the gospel in Hebrews has changed the way I share the gospel because it's changed how much I trust that the gospel actually applies to me and therefore can apply to anyone in Jesus alone. God knew that Hebrews was exactly what I desperately needed at this time. Praise the Lord. I'm not going back. That's what it's all about, faith family. That is what it's all about. So I trust that you have been encouraged as we've been working through this book. We are going to take a break after this weekend. We'll come back to the book of Hebrews at the beginning of the year and we'll finish it out. Uh, But I do hope that it has been a challenge and an encouragement to you. And we have a great passage before us this morning. If you're able to stand, please do so. 
as we honor the reading of God's Word, Hebrews chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, a tent prepared in the first section in which the lampstand and the table of the bread are present. It was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense, an ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. You still with me? <laughs> like, some of you are like, oh no. <laughs> Keep reading. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not the one made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, well, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is God's word. And if you don't think this relates to you, just wait. I'm glad you're here this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage before us. Uh, at initial reading, it, it may seem very foreign, and yet it's not. Holy Spirit, would you please come and guide us? Help us understand these things. Lead us into truth. Come talk to us here. Reveal our hearts. Fill us with hope. May we receive and believe in the truth that is your word. All to the glory of Jesus. He's the name that we exalt today. And we ask it in his name and God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. She didn't commit the murder, but she planned it. In fact, she not only helped plan it, she was actually more in favor of the plan than her husband was. For her, it was the surest way to get to the throne. And yet, even though she wasn't actually the one that committed the crime, she didn't actually do the deed, she knew that she was just as guilty as her husband. In fact, it was that guilt that one night while her body was asleep, her mind was still awake. She was pacing the floor back and forth, sleepwalking, mumbling aloud the inner secrets of her heart. Yet, here's a spot. She's out. Damn spot out, I say. Well then, it is time to do it. Hell 
is murky. By my Lord Fye, a soldier and a feared. What need we fear? Who knows it? When none can call our power to account. Yet who would have thought the old man to have had so much blood in him? Do you mark that? The Thane of Fife had a wife. Where is she now? What will these hands never be clean? is starting. Here's the smell of the blood. Still! All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this Some of you may remember those words. It's the famous scene in Shakespeare's Macbeth. Lady Macbeth is fighting a, a guilty conscience. Her and her husband had plotted and killed the king of Scotland. And even though she didn't actually do the crime, she wasn't the one that did the murder, she can't get this image out of her mind of having blood on her hands. And it doesn't matter what she tries to do. It doesn't matter what she tries to clean them with. She can't get rid of the smell of guilt. And the truth is, faith family, every single one of us knows exactly what that is like. We know what it's like to have blood on her hands. I, I, I don't mean the plotting of someone else's murder. I'm talking about the pacing of the soul. Why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why didn't I say yes? Why did I say no? Why didn't I say something? If I could only go back. Why didn't I listen? I don't know everything there is about you, but I know this about you. Every one of us has a conscience that testifies to ourselves that we have not done what we should do. We have blood on our hands, and it does not matter how much we try to clean and how much we try to purify and how much we try to wash. All the perfumes of Arabia can not sweeten our hands. And maybe you're here and you'd say, but Pastor, that's not me. I don't have a guilty conscience about anybody else. Uh, my, my conscience is clear. And maybe that, maybe that is true for a few of you as it relates to other people, but there's actually an area where all of us have a guilty conscience, and that is in our relationship with God. 
Look at what the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6. It says that all we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In other words, faith family, spiritually speaking, everybody here has blood on their hands. We are guilty before God. So the question we ought to be asking is how do we get clean? How, how do we get rid of the guilt? How do we address this issue once and for all? And that's why I'm so glad you're here this morning, Faith Family, because that's what the author addresses in Hebrews chapter 9. Before we dive in, remember, this letter was written to Hebrew Christians that is, people that were saved out of the Old Testament ways and traditions. And they are considering going back to that with all that came with it. One of the things is the sacrificial system, the sacrifices that people would offer for sins. And so the author has been comparing all of the old things to now what we have in Christ. He's talked about the words. He's talked about the law. He's talked about the priesthoods. He's talked about the covenants. And now he's going to compare the sacrifices. And he's going to point us to the good news of the gospel. But before we get there, I need you to hang with me. As I've told you in weeks past, we're going to be talking about a few things at the beginning here that aren't going to necessarily relate to your everyday life, but it doesn't mean it doesn't relate to your life. Are you with me? How many of you are anxiously waiting the Day of Atonement? Show of hands. How many of you brought your animal for me to sacrifice for you this morning? You see, these things don't tend to relate to us, and yet they have everything to do with us. So please hang with me as we walk through this text. The author starts at the beginning of chapter 9 by giving an overview of that old tabernacle, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship, an earthly place of holiness, a tent that was prepared, the first section in which was the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It was called the holy place. Then you had this second section divided by a curtain called the most holy place having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. In it was the golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, the, the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail, which is rather ironic, author of Hebrews, because you kind of like detail. He said, you know all this kind of stuff, particularly for their background. But for us, we don't fully understand it. So let me take you back. In the Old Testament, worship was uh, all about a location. All of it had to do with a specific place called the tabernacle. And, and that tent, that tabernacle, that temple was located right in the middle of where the nation of Israel would camp as to represent the fact that it was the central focus of their life. You don't have any Galilean gospel CDs to listen to your, in your donkey as you go to work, okay? You can't download on iTunes your favorite priest podcast. Those types of things don't happen. Everything has to do with the temple, the tabernacle, this tent. And so why don't we, as the author does in the first five verses of chapter 9, why don't we go inside? 
I want to take you this morning on a virtual tour into the tabernacle, and you will see visually what the author is talking about in the first five verses. As you enter in this first court uh, curtain, you enter into the outer court. The very first thing you would see is this altar. This altar is where all the sacrifices would happen. It's where you would bring your priest, your animal, and it would be sacrificed. Oftentimes, it would, be, it would burn, which is where in the Bible you often hear of burnt offerings. Well, because this is a very bloody ordeal. Also in the outer court is this basin of water. And the priest, because of all the sacrificing, they would use this water to wash their hands. Why? Because there was always blood on their hands. And they would purify themselves with this water. That's the outer court. Then you go into the holy place, the second section here. Only priests were allowed to go in here. On the left, you notice the lampstand that would burn with oil. There were no windows in the tabernacle, so this is the only source of light. To the right is the table of showbread. You've got 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel, two rows of six. And this is where the priest would go in and they would work in the tabernacle. There was one final section known as the Holy of Holies. You notice the curtain that separates them, that reminds them that they don't have access to God, but one day a year, and only the high priest could walk in here. As soon as you walk in, you notice the Ark of the Covenant. It's a wooden box covered in gold. There's the cherubim represented there on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, representing the very presence of God that would come and dwell with his people. Inside, you would know the symbols of disobedience. Aaron's staff that budded, the the Ten Commandments that they violated, the, the manna in the wilderness representing their grumbling. And so the priest would take the blood and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat and offer a sacrifice for his sins and the sins of the people. Are you with me? That's verses 1 through 5. You have visually seen what the author is saying. He's, come on, come on, you know that. I don't need to go into great details. You understand this. You understand that this is what it was about. It was about a temple. It was about light. It was about bread. It was about a sacrifice. And now the author is going to move on to say, you know all that. We won't go into much detail. But you also remember all the duties of the priest. Do you remember all the things that they would do? Verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section. He's not talking about the outer court. He's now talking about the Holy of Holies. Performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes. And yet, but once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and the unintentional sins of the people. Do you remember all the priest would do, all their ritualistic duties? Do you remember how busy they were? Oh my goodness, in the outer court, people were always dropping by with a sacrifice. Do you know why? Because they felt guilty. There was only like 600 and something laws that you had to obey. And when you knew you broke one, you'd bring your sacrifice to your priest and he would sacrifice it for you. So there's always people coming and going, coming and going, and that's just the outer court. Into the holy place, priests would go, and there was always something to do in there. A lampstand that had needed more oil, coals that needed to be on the altar for incense. You had to weekly replenish the bread. There was always something going on. And then that one day a year, the Day of Atonement in the Holy of Holies. You remember, you read about it in Leviticus 16 in your quiet time this morning before you came to church, Right? And do you remember how seven days before that day, the high priest, and only the high priest would prepare, he would leave his family and he would go to the tabernacle and he would stay there and he would recite his lines over and over and over and over again. He's getting focused, okay? And he would avoid anything that was unclean. 
He would avoid the dead. He would avoid anything that would cause him to not be purified for this day. And then that day would come, the day of atonement. It's Super Bowl day. It's game day. And he puts on his white robe and he takes a bull and two goats. The bull is for him and his family, the goats. One will be for the sacrifice of the people. The other will be an escape goat. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And he would sacrifice them. Then he would go into the Holy of Holies three times. The first to offer up some incense so that he would not have direct contact with the presence of God. Then he'd go out. He'd take the blood of the bull for his sins and his family's and he'd go back in and he'd offer it. Then he'd go back out and he would take the unlucky goat that got the lot cast on it and he would take that blood in and offer it for the sins of the people. He would go back out to the scapegoat and release it off into the wilderness and Israel would cheer and clap and rejoice for their sins had been covered for one more year. He's quite bloody at this point. So he takes off his robe, he takes a bath, and he puts on a new robe. And he leads his people in a procession to a celebration of what God had temporarily done for them. You know all this! That's what the author's saying. I don't need to go into much detail about the old sanctuary or the old tabernacle. You understand all that. And you understand all the things the priest would do. But don't you also remember something else? Do you remember how when it was finished, it wasn't really finished? Do you remember that when it was over, it wasn't really over? Remember how when the music faded and the sermon was over and all the offering had been collected and they returned back to the parking lot and got in their camels? The guilt remained. Verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered, we just talked about all that, that cannot, everybody say cannot, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In other words, I don't need to go into much detail about this. You already know how everything was laid out and all the duties that the priest would do. You understand that. And here's what you also understand, that when it was all finished, it wasn't finished. The system wasn't sufficient. Let me give you four reasons why you know that that kind of sacrificial system didn't work. First, it didn't last long enough. It didn't last long enough. It's what I just said. Uh, When it was all over, you had to do it again. More oil in the lamps, more coals on the altar, more animals to be sacrificed, more bread to be replaced. It never stopped. Secondly, it wasn't sufficient because it didn't get you close enough. That Holy of Holies, do you remember how that curtain would close and for 364 days, once again, you did not have access to God? You couldn't get close. And thirdly, you know that it wasn't sufficient because it didn't go deep enough. All it did was deal with the external sins. It didn't deal with the internal heart. Look at what he says in chapter 10, verse 1. He makes this point. 
For since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, everybody say never, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, what is there? There is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It doesn't go deep enough. It doesn't purify the conscience, which leads us to number four, is it doesn't remove enough. Despite all the effort and the good works and the good intentions and the blood and the special clothes and the rituals, your guilt still remained. It cannot purify the conscience of the worshiper. In other words, you still, when it's all said and done, have blood on your hands. Some of you may remember the name Albert Speer. He was a close associate with Adolf Hitler. In fact, it was his technological genius, and I do not mean that in any positive way, that engineered the German factories in World War II. Of the 24 criminals that were tried at Nuremberg, he was the only one that admitted his guilt. He spent 20 years in prison. When he got out, ABC's Good Morning America did an interview with him because he was putting out a book. The reporter asked him this question, and I quote, You mentioned in your book that you don't believe your past can ever be forgiven. Do you still feel that way? He thought for a moment, and here's his reply. Quote, I served 20 years in prison, and I am now a free man. I wish I could say that after serving my time that my conscience is clear, but I can't. I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people. And I can't get rid of it. This book is a part of my atonement. A way of trying to clear my conscience. Now, I want you to think about that, faith family. For 35 years, he accepted responsibility. For 20 years, he served time in prison. In his book, is full of remorse. He constantly warns people not to follow his path. And yet, in all those attempts, you know what he can't do? He can't get the blood off his hands. And it's as though the author just wants to say, you want to go back to that? You really want to go back to that? A system you know is flawed. And as I have told you, if you think this is just an Old Testament thing, you are very misinformed. We do the exact same thing today. We just don't use the same methods. Outside the church, people will give money to charity. Why? To clear the conscience. People will compare themselves to others. Well, at least I've never done that. Why? To clear the conscience. 
They will try to explain God away so that they don't have to be held accountable. Why? So that they can clear the conscience. And yet they know in the darkness of the soul, there's still blood on their hands. It doesn't just happen outside the church. You had better believe it happens inside the church. You just have to take away the lampstand and insert guitars and drums Take away the altar, insert Bible studies and giving envelopes. Take away the robes and insert suit and ties. Take away the animals and insert any host of religious activities. And yet all those attempts to be good enough aren't good enough. Why? Because it doesn't last long enough. It doesn't get you close enough because it doesn't go deep enough. And by the time you get to your car in the parking lot today, you will know it to be true. There is still blood on your hands. You can't purify the conscience. So why would you go to that kind of system? And it leaves us at this point of just saying, there's got to be a better way. God, please, is there a better way? And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is there is a better way. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not the one made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, well, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He's not done. Verse 24. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Jesus has appeared once For all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, period, exclamation mark. That's a sermon. Oh, faith family, listen, there are some passages you don't have to preach. There are some passages you just got to read. The author has just said there in those verses, don't you understand there's a new and better way? That all those sacrificial systems you run to, be it the one of the Old Testament or be it the one of morality or be it the one of whatever, it doesn't matter. They don't take the blood away. But there is one who laid himself down and he can. He's the greater and ultimate sacrifice. Come on, come on, come on. Just think about it, people. Look here on the screen. Those old sacrifices were done on earth. His sacrifice was done in heaven. Those old sacrifices, the one they did back then, are the ones you do right now. Oh, they might happen once a year. His was once for all. 
Oh, those old sacrifices back then? Sure, sure. They bought you a little extra time. He bought you an eternal salvation. Those old sacrifices, those were involuntary. You didn't get a group of goats together and one goat say, I'll do it. No. It was involuntary, but his sacrifice was willing and joyful for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Don't you see there is a far greater sacrifice for sins? His name is Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean, faith family. Listen, listen, listen. Do you really want to be right with God? Do you really want your sins forgiven? Do you really want your conscience cleaned? Do you want your hands free from guilt once and for all? Then you need a temple. You need a lampstand. You need bread. You need a priest. You need a sacrifice for your sins. You must have a day of atonement. Don't you see, faith family, there is a greater way to deal with your sin problem. And it is the Savior who knew no sin yet became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Don't you miss him. You get caught up in all this religious activity today and you miss him. The author is saying, don't you see all those things back there are pointing you to him. He's the only way to be cleansed once and for all. Now, what do we learn from this? That's the truth of the passage here in Hebrews 9 and 10. What, what are some things that we need to take away quickly? Just number one, the first thing is this. faith. I hope that you see as a result of this the penalty of our sin, the penalty that we deserve. Some of you hate this message. I hope you won't email me about it. You don't even like the book of Hebrews. And the reason is is because you can't stand the idea of blood. It grosses you out. It's disgusting. You see it and you cringe as well you should. But the Bible is a bloody book. It drips with blood. Do you know why? Do you know why many of you find that disgusting? Because you should find that disgusting as a way of showing each and every one of us how disgusting our sin is to a holy God. 
If you know the verse, say it with me. For the wages of sin is death. Why is there all this bloodshed? Why is all this sacrificing? Why is there all this death? Because that's what our sin deserves. The good news of the gospel is this. Rather than having us die for our sins, God said, I'll take their place. And though they deserve death, I'll die in their place. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Don't leave this passage without understanding how big of a deal your sin is to a holy God. But notice, secondly, something that we should take away from this passage is not just the penalty we deserve, but the purity that we can experience. The real purity that we can experience. Look, for instance, again in verse 14. It says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? Do you know why the Bible says uh, that there is purity of conscience? Because your conscience can actually be purified. Because you can actually be clean. And, and I know some of you will say, no, 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 you don't understand what I've done. You don't understand the things that I've committed. You don't understand the sin that I've done. And I just want to say, listen, do you think you know more than God knows? I mean, do you realize how arrogant it is to say God can't forgive me? But God said he can and he will. Amen. And last time I checked, God knows more about it than you do. So how about you trust him that when he says, like we talked about last week, and I will remember your sins no more, that he actually meant that. And that even though we deserve a just penalty of death for our sins, he will give us purity in its place and wash us white as snow. That's a real thing. That's a real thing. Do you believe it? Thirdly, is I also want us to see the privilege that we have. The privilege that we have. We won't read it in verse 14, but verse 14 ends with, uh, to, to change us from dead works to serve the living God. In other words, one of the transformations that takes place when we begin to realize this, I, I've said this before, but everybody come in. When you start understanding that Jesus is not only the priest, but he's also the sacrifice, and that it's once for all, and that it's finished, and that it's eternal, and that it's done, what you stop doing is offering sacrifices of acceptance. And you start offering sacrifices of worship. You with me? In other words, you begin to understand the privileged condition that you have because of Christ, which makes you absolutely blown away that you can serve in his kingdom. You get to be a part of what God is doing. You don't have to be a part of it. He doesn't need you, but his, by his grace, has brought you into this and moved you from dead works to serve the living God. Oh, Berean, you had better be refreshed and renewed in the privilege it is to serve Jesus. We don't live under the old covenant where we have to do this by law. We live under the new covenant. Where because of his forgiveness and love that has transformed our life, we start seeing our life in different ways. And we can't help but serve. 
That's one of the marks of knowing whether or not you really understand this, is do you see the joy in serving him? Fourthly, one another thing that we should take from this passage is just the passion of our lives. The passion of our lives. Verse 27, and then we'll close. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time. You do believe that, right, faith family? He will appear, he will appear a second time, and guess what? He won't deal with sin. <laughs> Praise him. Why? Because he already did. He will appear to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. I, I'm going to sit down for this one. My friends, 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 if the gospel doesn't drive you to love Jesus more, you don't understand the gospel. I told you last week or, or a couple weeks ago that this has got to move from intellectual to personal. It's also got to move from intellectual to affectual. That is, this starts stirring your emotions and your, 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 your feelings, your worship of God. You love him more. Is the book of Hebrews doing that to you? Is the fact that you are not under law, but you have an indestructible life, you don't have a priest that dies, you have a priest that lives forever, you have a relationship that's not based on performance, but that of forgiveness, that you don't have to keep your distance, that you can draw near, that you don't have religion, you actually have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Does that do anything in your heart? I don't know, like make you eagerly want to see him one day face to face. It should, it's what it does, that you know a day is coming when he will split the sky and he won't deal with your sin because he already dealt with your sin. He will just come for his own and he will be our God and we will be his people. God, stir our affections for you. Because of this truth. That's, that's what this has to do. It has to show us the penalty we deserve. But the purity that we can have. The privilege that we have in serving Jesus. And just stirring up in us worship. Like in just a moment, we're going to close and give you an opportunity to worship. And, and I, I pray that you will sing in the top of your lungs this great truth. in worshiping your great high priest. Faith family, every single one of us here today, listen, 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 listen. Everybody is just like Lady Macbeth. We're just like the Old Testament priest. Every one of us has blood on our hands. Why? Because it was our sin that held him there. And if you keep on your own trying to offer your own sacrifices, I'm telling you, you'll never get rid of the smell. The guilt will remain, but there is a better way, but there's only one way. And here's how it happens. Listen. Today you have to take your bloody hands 
and surrender them into His bloody hands. Because it was His hands that were bloodied so that yours would be forever clean. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this great, great truth. <laughs> what? There is no better news in the world. There really is no better news in the world. And I'm glad that we are here today to be able to see this word that initially I know is quite complicated, but yet the truth of the matter is we all have sacrificial systems. We're all trying to, to, to make atonement, and yet there's already been a full and final sacrifice in the person of Jesus Christ. We don't have to work for that. We just have to receive that by faith. And if there is somebody here this morning that's never done that, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God right now is drawing them and that they would confess with their mouth, they would believe in their hearts that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the grave and he is seated at the right hand of God and he is the great high priest. And everything they think they can do, they can't, but he can. And that they would put their trust and faith in him. There are others in this room that have done that, but their affections need to be stirred up because of this great truth. Oh, that the gospel would never get old. How can this great news ever get old? So stir in us worship for our great high priest. God, draw us near in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.